Welcome to The Internet Says It's True. This is a show where we learn something new every week, and I am getting more and more excited to do this show every week because I'm watching the stats on who's listening, and and the show is growing. So it makes the show so much more fun to write and record and edit knowing that you are listening. I do the show for no money, absolutely free. So if you listen to this podcast every week and want to help out a bit, you can do that over at patreon.com slash Kent. A lot of you spend like a dollar a day on coffee. You can enjoy all the bonuses I put up there at Patreon for only a dollar a month. And hopefully the show brings you as much enjoyment as a cup of coffee. Let's keep the community growing there. If you didn't listen to last week's show, it was a fun one. And you got to meet my brother Kyle, which was a lot of fun. Although I do have a bone to pick with Kyle. We talked for like 40 minutes and he never told me that he's coming in for 4th of July. So we're about to have words. Uh, Let's get on to this week's show. Today's topic comes from Joel. Hey, Michael. It's Joel. I saw a post recently about that time the military accidentally dropped a nuclear bomb on South Carolina. I thought it might be interesting to look into that. Thanks. Loving the show. Remember that movie Broken Arrow? John Travolta and Christian Slater, they were, they were a couple of Air Force pilots whose job it is to locate some missing dropped nuclear warheads. It was a fun film. Well, it turns out Broken Arrow is the official term the military uses for an accident involving nuclear weapons. And in the 76 years since the invention of nuclear weapons in 1945, we've had at least 32 broken arrow scenarios. For this week, we're just going to be talking about one particular aircraft, the Boeing B-47 Stratojet. Even before the end of World War II, the Air Force had asked manufacturers to start drawing up plans for a long-range, jet-powered bomber. Remember, the airplane that really ended World War II by dropping atomic bombs in Japan was the B-29, a propeller aircraft. The United States never did put any jet-powered aircraft into combat in that war. It was still very early in the development of jet-powered flight. The B-47 was finally put into service in 1951. It was a swept-wing, sleek-looking bomber aircraft with six engines carried under its wings. And if I had to describe the problem with these aircraft, it would be that they suffered from growing pains. There were the growing pains of jet-propelled flight itself. While the aircraft was incredibly fast and powerful, it took a very long time to accelerate. The new design of the swept wing caused structural issues. New design elements like those swept wings and power elements like jet engines were being put on an aircraft that was essentially using outdated metallurgy and construction techniques and there were a lot of limits on its capability. On top of that, it was a difficult plane to fly for airmen who were used to a 10-man crew. The B-47 flew with only three. So every moment of flight, every issue, every warning was happening faster and with less men to tend to it. The slightest lapse in attention could now be catastrophic. Then there were the growing pains of a quickly growing Air Force. Ramping up mass production on the aircraft led to a few manufacturing issues. By the time they were produced, the existing refueling infrastructure didn't meet the demands of these new long-range bombers. They started retiring the B-47 just 18 years after it was introduced. To give you a frame of reference, the B-52 bomber was introduced in 1955 and has yet to be retired from the service 66 years later. So the B-47 Stratajet was a short-lived bomber designed to face a very real and serious threat of nuclear war. 
It was designed to carry nuclear bombs and could fly all the way to the Soviet Union with them. There were just over 2,000 Stratajets manufactured, and a staggering 10% of them, 203 to be exact, were lost in crashes. And when you look at the timeline of when this aircraft was in its peak duty, it coincides with the time when the aircraft started carrying nuclear weapons. That leads to the horrible events of 1957 and 1958 that we'll get to in just a moment. When I was in the sixth grade, bomber jackets like the ones Air Force pilots wore were huge. You weren't cool unless you had one, but it's 2021 now, and I'm deeming that you're not cool unless you have a Scotty vest. Boom, segue. I am so excited to be partnered with Scotty Vest. As you all know and you hear every week, these are jackets that I actually wear. I have several and they're packed with pockets. You don't even have to fill up all the pockets. You've just got options, right? There's a pocket where you can put your glasses and it has an included lens wipe. There's a pocket for your keys with an included little snap for your key ring so you don't lose your keys if you're out hiking in the woods or something like that. On two of the Scotty Vest jackets I have, you can remove the sleeves and they become literal vests. But so much of their clothing are not just vests. They have jackets, they have shirts, they have pants. They even have underwear with pockets in them. And I want you to get 15% off of your order. Go to scottyvest.com and enter promo code TELLME, T-E-L-L-M-E, and you can get 15% off of your order. It's scottyvest.com, promo code TELLME. Another great partner of this show is Virtual Presenter Course. As you know, I love live streaming. I live streamed 45 of the 60 episodes of Joke Story Trick, and I learned how to do everything that I do on live streaming from having to do a ton of research on YouTube. And it took me days and days and days to figure out what I was doing. I did a lot of things wrong and had to go back and do them again. I wish that I had Virtual Presenter Course. What they have done is taught you everything that you need to know to take your boring Zoom meeting and make it exciting. We're talking about building a virtual backdrop to make it look like you're sitting in a studio, popping up different graphics when you need to, controlling everything with a push of a button, and it's made to be understood by people who are not tech savvy. They test everything on non-computer users, people who don't know what they're doing, in order to make sure that their ideas come across clearly and easily. When you buy Virtual Presenter Course just for listening to this podcast, I'm going to get you 20% off your order. You get that by going to virtualpresentercourse.com slash 30. There's also a link in the show notes. I promise you, you're going to like what you see. It's an extensive course teaching you everything from sound design to virtual backdrops to lighting to video, and you get 20% off just for listening to the show. It's virtualpresentercourse.com slash 30, and you too can be a world-class presenter. Let's get back to the show. The reason we spent so much time learning about the B-47 is that out of the 32 broken arrow events in history, nine of them involved this one particular aircraft. Now think back to what we learned about how short-lived this airplane's operational lifespan was. This gives you a pretty good idea of how dangerous it really was. And it's even crazier than that. Those nine potential nuclear accidents happened in a period of just three years from 1956 to 1958. And in 1957 and 1958, 49 of these aircraft crashed, killing a total of 122 airmen. As many problems as there were with the B-47, neither of the two stories we're going to talk about were the fault of the aircraft. 
In the dark early morning of February 5th of 1958, a B-47 crew commanded by Air Force Colonel Howard Richardson left from Homestead Air Force Base in Florida to conduct a simulated combat mission for training. It was carrying a 7,600-pound Mark 15 nuclear bomb. An airspace nearby, Air Force Lieutenant Clarence Stewart was piloting his F-86 fighter jet. He didn't see the B-47 on his radar, and at approximately 2 a.m., the two aircraft collided. With the wing missing from his small fighter jet, Lieutenant Stewart ejected and parachuted to safety in a swamp. For the B-47 bomber, their fuel tanks had been heavily damaged and were leaking fuel. Colonel Richardson didn't know if he could land the bomber without the nuclear bomb detaching and detonating. He made the choice to ditch the bomb in the waters off Tybee Island in Georgia. He was able to land the plane safely at Hunter Air Base in Savannah, but that bomb landed in the Atlantic Ocean near Wausau Sound. And as far as we know, that's where the bomb rests, undetonated, today. Just over one month later, on March 11th of 1958, it was the middle of the afternoon in Mars Bluff, South Carolina, when six-year-old Helen and nine-year-old Francis Gregg were playing in their yard with their cousin Ella. Suddenly, a whistle from the sky and a huge explosion. Here's what happened. Captain Earl Kohler was piloting a B-47E Stratojet, 15,000 feet in the sky over South Carolina. The crew was scheduled to fly to the United Kingdom and continue on to North Africa. This was part of an ongoing training mission to track the accuracy of mock bomb drops. Except the bombs on board were very real. Tensions with the Soviet Union were at a height and the Cold War was becoming less cold by the day. For this reason, the aircraft taking part in this training mission, ominously dubbed Operation Snow Flurry, carried live nuclear bombs in case war broke out during the missions. The bomb being carried by Captain Kohler's B-47 that day was similar to the one lost in the Atlantic in February, a 7,600-pound Mark VI nuclear bomb. The first indication of a problem that day was when Captain Kohler noticed an indicator light telling him that a bomb harness locking pin did not engage. This wasn't the mechanism that held the bomb in place. It was an added safety measure. It was one of a few steps to secure it to the plane. When he noticed this indicator, the bombardier and navigator, Captain Bruce Kolka, scrambled to the Bombay area of the aircraft to check it out. As he reached around the bomb to lift himself up, he accidentally grabbed hold of the one thing he shouldn't have, the bomb's emergency release mechanism. This dropped the full weight of the 10-foot-long, 7,600-pound bomb, along with Captain Kolka, onto the bomb bay doors. The bombardier desperately reached his arm out to grab onto something. The bomb, however, weighed too much for the doors. He looked down through the open doors and watched in horror 
as the bomb started falling 15,000 feet to the land below. The three children playing below at the Gregg house had no idea that the bomb was coming toward them. The Mark VI nuclear bomb detonated 200 yards from the children. All three were injured, but none were killed. Luckily for those children, and for Mars Bluff, South Carolina, and for the southeastern part of the United States, the nuclear capsule was not on the bomb. The capsule, which contained the fissile nuclear core, was still on board the aircraft and hadn't been loaded into the bomb housing. Even so, that bomb was carrying enough explosives to blow a crater into the ground that was 70 feet wide and 30 feet deep. In addition to injuring the three girls playing, it obliterated their playhouse, injured their mother, father, and brother, and damaged seven nearby buildings. An atomic bomb breaks loose from a mounting shackle in a B-47 jet over Florence, South Carolina, plummets to earth, causing a sensational freak accident. There was near disaster for those within range of the TNT, that is the bomb's trigger. Six were injured. The home of Walter Gregg was turned into a shambles. After the incident and the victim's recovery, the Gregg family sued and was awarded $54,000 in damages. If you visit Mars Bluff, South Carolina, you can still see the crater today. It's overgrown with trees and brush, but the site is marked with a historical marker. As for the bomb dropped outside Tybee Island in the Atlantic Ocean, throughout the years, the military has mounted efforts to locate the bomb, even as recently as 2004. But to this day, it's one of six American nuclear weapons that have been lost and never found. Now it's time for the part of the podcast where I call a friend and quiz them. And today, I've invited podcaster and actor Michael Spedden to the show. Michael is the host of the Foul Players Radio and regularly appears as a member of the Foul Players of Perryville, a murder mystery troupe in Maryland. Michael Spedden, good to see you again. Michael, it's great to see you. It's great to see you. It looks like things are starting to get back to normal, which is great for both of us. So uh, I'm happy to have you. You were on my show, Joke Story Trick, but you haven't been on this podcast on the Internet Says It's True. And the way that we do this is it's a quick five questions and you don't know anything about it. Our listeners have just learned this, but I haven't talked to you about it. Then after this first question, we'll get to some stuff that's new to all of us. And each question we play for something. So for this first question, we're playing for a free podcast plug. So if you get it right, I'll give your podcast a free plug on next week's show. If you get it wrong, you've got to plug this podcast on your next episode. Agree? Uh, agreed. Most okay. definitely. Most definitely. Here's your question. There is a crater in Mars Bluff, South Carolina, that at the time of its creation is believed to have been 70 feet wide and 30 feet deep. Which one of these was the cause of the crater? A. The Air Force accidentally dropped a bomb. B, a meth lab blew up. Or C, a meteor fell from the sky. Well, <laughs> down there, all of those are definitely feasible. Um, I will have to go with the meteor. 
I'm sorry, Michael. The answer is A. The Air Force accidentally dropped a bomb. Can you believe Jeez. it? Uh, and not only that, it was a nuclear bomb. Luckily, <gasps> fortunately, it was not armed with the nuclear oh, warhead. Um, but it was oh armed God. with a ton of explosives. It destroyed seven houses. It injured some people. No one was killed. Um, but it's one of many accidents that we have had with nuclear bombs. And that's what this episode was about. Oh, um, okay. So I get a, a plug on your podcast. Your next yes, podcast. You the next uh, Foul Players Radio. I will give which, you a plug. And if you want, you can just tell them about your experience here on the show. And that would be, that would suffice. Mm-hmm. Question two. For this question. If you get it wrong, you have to tell me about your most embarrassing gig as an actor. If you oh, okay. get it, you got one in mind? Oh, yes. Uh, there, there's <laughs> Maybe we'll talk about <laughs> them anyway. This sounds like, <laughs> sounds like a good story. If you get it right, I'll tell you a story about my most embarrassing gig, which was acting in a television commercial. And <laughs> okay. uh, we'll, we'll get into that. The movie Broken Arrow with John Travolta and Christian Slater was met with mixed reviews when it was released in 1996. It was the only time that Roger Ebert got Gene Siskel to change his mind about a movie. Siskel gave the movie a thumbs up, but after hearing Ebert talk about it, he changed his rating to thumbs down. Even still, the movie was number one at the box office on its opening weekend. Now, this is 1996. Which one of these movies did it beat for that number one spot? So one of these three movies was the number two movie in 1996. A. Hunt for Red October, B, Mr. Holland's Opus, or C, The Passion of the Christ? Oh, um, I would have to say, I would have to say B. You are correct. Mr. Holland's Opus. Uh, I tried to space these out because A was Hunt for Red October. That was 1990. That was six years prior. Yeah, that's what I remember. Um, yeah, yeah. And the I knew that of, it wasn't out that year. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And the Passion of the Christ was too new. That was two thousand four. Yeah, that's yeah, that's what I was thinking. I was like, because um, there was another movie about um, you know, the Passion or something that came out around that time. I think it was it the Willem Dafoe one or something. Yeah, something um, along those lines. Yeah, I'm, I yeah. I would have to look back at the charts. The nineteen ninety six <laughs> Broken Arrow movie. It brought in $46 million, and that was the number one movie. The Passion hmm. of the Christ was the number one movie in 2004. It brought in $125 million, and wow. The Hunt for Red October in 1990 brought in $72 million. So while it was number hmm. one, 1996, $46 million, not a huge box office. Um, yeah. And it was, like I said, mixed reviews on that movie. So uh, you got that one right. I will tell you a story about my most embarrassing gig, which was acting in a television commercial. It was my first acting gig that I got, (laughs) and I did not really know what I was doing. I had never done any sort of, other than magic stuff, I had never done any sort of on-screen acting before. And this was, I was booked to, Mm -hmm. to play a construction worker in a cell phone commercial. This was for the government subsidized cell phones that became known as Obama phones. Yeah, uh, yeah, but before they the burners, were, yeah, yeah, the, yeah, this was before they were called that. What they did was people they would they would take like recycled phones and then sell them at at really really low prices to people mm-hmm. who needed phones, which is an awesome program. But this commercial, it, it wasn't the writing, it wasn't the it was tr- it was just bad acting. I was just not a good actor, <laughs> and it may have been bad casting, but uh, I 
did not look like a construction worker. When I looked in the mirror that morning, I was like, this is not going to. And they, they dirtied up my face because they thought so, too. So I'm wearing a hard hat. <laughs> it was in a kitchen. I was coming home and it was in a hard. I was wearing a hard hat. And that's how you knew I was a construction worker and probably the only way. And when they, they dirtied up my face, the director said, no, nope, this is too much. So then they had to undirty my face. And then the whole scene in this, this commercial was almost like a, a domestic dispute. It was I came home and my wife in the commercial uh, had it was talking on a cell phone. And I said, you ordered mm-hmm. a cell phone. We can't afford that. And it caused like this fight or whatever. And then she said, relax, it's a government or it's a, it's free or whatever. <laughs> um, so this was on the Internet soon after it aired. And I should have saved it. And I didn't because I can't find it anywhere, which I'm so <laughs> glad about. But at the same time, I would love to see it just so I can share it with people to show them how bad uh-huh. it is. It will never go on my reel. It is a horrible acting job. So for the listeners out there, uh, look for the cell phone commercial. The name of the cell phone company was Reach Out Wireless. So if you can mm-hmm. find a Reach Out Wireless commercial, this would have been from probably close to 10 years ago. Um, and of course, my name wouldn't be associated with it, but you'll see a construction worker yelling at his wife. Look for that. <laughs> I would love it if someone sends me a, a video link to that. Question three. The running prize for this question number three is always the same. It's one of these stickers that is a tell me what to Google sticker. Tell me ah, what to Google okay. is the former name of this podcast. And I ordered all these stickers before I changed the name of the podcast. So I'm trying to get rid of them all. If you get this right, you'll get one in the mail. In Goldsboro, oh. North Carolina, a nuclear bomb was found buried in a field after a B-52 crash that happened in 1961. After it was discovered, which one of these solutions did the Army Corps of Engineers do to handle the situation? A. They carefully removed the bomb and transported it to an island where it was detonated. B. They removed the nuclear core and put the bomb on display at a local North Carolina museum. Or C. They purchased a 400-foot circle of land around the bomb and left it where it is. Hmm. Um. I would have to say possibly C. I'll go with C. You are correct. Unbelievably, all they did was fenced it off and left it there. <laughs> this is from, <laughs> from nationalinterest.com. Somewhere near Goldsboro, North Carolina, a uranium core is likely buried in a field. It had been mm-hmm. one of the cores for a pair of 24 megaton nuclear bombs that were on a B-52 that crashed shortly after takeoff. What is especially unsettling about this incident is that three of the four arming mechanisms on the bomb that was recovered had been activated. So it's Jeez. three quarters of the way there. Uh, they, they just bought a 400-foot circle of land around the bomb, and they just said, it's staying there. We're not touching it. And that's where it rests to this day, covered by land. Nobody knows exactly where that is because they don't put it out there publicly obviously for for obvious reasons but that's how they handled that situation you got this one right which means i will mail you a tell me what to google sticker the much coveted uh dwindling supply i bought 200 of these and i think i've got 193 left so it's dwindling (laughs) yeah it's dwindling i hear you on that question four for this one we're playing for what i call an audio easter egg this is where 
If you get the question wrong, you have to say a phrase of my choosing somewhere in the next episode of the Foul Players Radio podcast. If you get it right, I will say a phrase of your choosing. The phrase of my choosing for this one is, quote, And that is a cup of coffee I will never forget. So that's the phrase you have to work into your podcast somewhere. If, uh, if you miss this one, the quote is, And that is a cup of coffee I will never forget. So this one's a true or false question. True or false, in case you are exposed to a nuclear explosion, it's recommended that you immediately remove your clothes. I would say true. And the reason I'm saying that is because they were looking at, like when we were going out in the early days of the pandemic, they were saying when you come home to change your clothes. And I guess, um, you know, there's the risk of carrying around all that extra radiation. That, that, that's my reasoning for saying true. It's a good reasoning and correct. It is true. Uh, so FEMA has put out a series of instructions for what to do if you experience a nuclear explosion, which is surreal. First of all, you can go to yeah, the FEMA yeah. website and you can search for what to do in case of a nuclear explosion. And it gives you instructions mm-hmm. along with getting inside a building. A 2014 version of their instructions say that removing your clothes can remove Mm. up to 90% of radioactive material from your body. Wow. Yeah, so our clothes are are pretty good buffers of radioactive material in the event of a nuclear explosion. I don't know how they test this stuff. I mean, that takes a nuclear explosion (laughs) to know, right? I don't know. Yeah, yeah. I guess the other advice they're probably saying is for some people is maybe shave your back and... um... (laughs) (laughs) Shave Shave your back, remove all body hair. Uh, it's probably true though, right? I mean, if clothes stop nuclear radiation, hair has mm-hmm. to, it has to. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I would, I would guess that, um, probably the farther away from the bomb, the more effective that is. Cause I can't see if it happened right next to you, you even being there to have clothing or your clothing, not disintegrating on its own. Yeah. The bomb does that for you. <laughs> yeah. 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 That's true. I mean, this is probably, you know, if you're under the cloud of fallout that happens, mm-hmm. Uh, it's a horrible thing to think about, but these are the things that obviously have been concerns frequently enough in our history that the that FEMA has had to address it with some instructions. So you remember in the 70s, there was that movie called The Nude Bomb that was it was a Maxwell Smart movie. It was based on Get Smart and it was actually a bomb. It was very bad, well, but it had, you know, uh, Don Adams and Barbara Feldon. In it, and it was about a bomb that made everybody's clothes disappear. <laughs> Starting a question with, do you remember in the 70s to me? I have exactly <laughs> 11 and a half months of reference of that. I was only okay. alive for 11 months of the 70s. Oh, okay. uh, so I don't, I don't, I've never seen that though. I've never heard of it. But that sounds like a 70s, like a director or, or a writer of a movie was like, we need an interesting way to make everyone remove their clothes in a movie. Yeah, that, that was a, uh, you know, the Get Smart was a Mel Brooks show, but I don't think he had anything to do with this movie. I'm really not sure about it, but um, I'll have I know to what you're saying up. about the 70s, too, because I was alive for about six months in the 60s. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't, I don't remember any of that. I'm an 80s baby. So, okay, uh, but yeah, I was, bo- yeah. I was born in January of, of 1979. So, okay. June of 69. There so. you go. There you go. So, uh, so do you have a phrase that, that you want me to say on next week's podcast? I will throw in an audio Easter egg of your choosing. Let me see here. Um, I learned how to walk and shoe Guam at the same time. <laughs> 
I remember that yeah. from your. I, this was your joke on joke story trick. Yeah. Perfect. I will put that in next week's podcast, uh, the episode after this one. So mm-hmm. listeners, uh, listen for that. I learned how to walk and shoe Guam at the same time. I will definitely throw that in. Uh, you have gotten that one right as well. You are three for four on this so far. And there's only one question left. And this one is for all the marbles. Question number five. If you get this wrong, I'm banning you from the show. Never to be asked on again. Here's your question, Michael. What was the last great purchase you made? The last great purchase I made was just a couple of weeks ago. I bought myself a MacBook Pro. I still have my 19. I still have my 2008 Dell uh, right up here on the shelf. But I got this MacBook which is a lot better for podcasting and doing everything because actually when I'm speaking to you right now, I don't look like I'm in a Kung Fu movie <laughs> where you hear my voice and you see my mouth move three seconds later. Yeah. Or actually you're... the delay is a lot less than it was, but I, I got this and things are a lot quicker. Um, it, it's much better for my purposes, my recording and, you know, editing videos and audio for my podcast and everything. So that w- it was a great purchase, and I'm glad that I did so. That's awesome. We are not sponsored by Apple, but I no. uh, I run this show, and I ran Joke Story Trick off of a MacBook Pro. I absolutely mm-hmm. love it. Um, it goes with me everywhere, and I'm amazed at how that machine has kept up with everything I've thrown at it, which has been a ton of really heavy processor-intensive stuff and... uh Man, you know, doing 90 minute shows, live streaming to three different locations with all this different stuff running, probably 10 programs running all at the same time. Mm-hmm. And it just never even took a breath. It was it was a, a trooper. So awesome. Well, uh, it's been really great having you on the show again, Michael. Well, and you. Uh, you can come on anytime you'd like. I'm going to mail you a tell me what to Google sticker. I'm going to drop a uh, I'm going to drop an audio Easter egg. In next week's episode, I've told you my my embarrassing acting story. Oh, and then you'll you have to do a plug because you went four for five. You have to do a plug for this show in your next episode because that's the only question you got wrong today. Thanks for joining us, Michael, and I hope that you have a fantastic week. I will. And thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. And likewise, you can come on Foul Players Radio anytime you like, too. I'd like to get an update from you once the road opens back up and see how you're making out. Thank you. Yeah, I will. I absolutely will. That is all for this week. Thanks to Joel for the show topic and to Michael Spedden for being a guest. Go hit that Patreon if you want to see the video unedited of my interview with Michael. There's lots of bonus stuff on there. I mean, we talked for a long time after we did the quiz. You can go hear all that at patreon.com slash Michael Kent. Also, there's going to be a new bonus episode on there very soon. If you learned something that you didn't already know from this show, please go over to iTunes and leave a review with five stars and a few words. That's the rule. You got to do it. We've only got 30 or 40 uh, reviews up there, and I would love to have, let's say, 50 by the end of June. If we can do 50 reviews by the end of June, I'll be happy, and then we'll set the next goal. That's the rule. You got to do it. That helps me a ton because that's how the algorithm works, to get the podcast suggested to more people, and that way we can keep learning something new if the internet says it's true. 
The internet says it's true. would like to thank the Patreon subscribers whose monthly contributions put them at producer status. Sean Brown, Catherine Morgan, Taylor Hurt, Tony Ford, Bryce Swanson, Mitch Joseph Kemplin, Andrew Joseph Kemplin, Alan Sokolik, Eugene Anderson, Matt McVeigh, Jim Martin, and Joanne Martin. The show is written and produced by me, Michael Kent. The theme song is by Finite Music Forge, and additional music this week was from the Westerlies and Esther Abrami. All audio clips in this episode are used for education and commentary and used under Fair Use Title 17 U.S. Section 107. You can listen to past episodes by searching for The Internet Says It's True wherever you get your podcasts, and you can see bonus content at patreon.com slash Michael Kent. <laughs>